Well, tonight we are going to be looking at probably what is probably one of the most best known chapters in the entire Bible. In fact, even unbelievers are familiar with this chapter because it often gets quoted um, at weddings. It's called the love chapter. And what's interesting is most people, though, are unfamiliar with the context of this chapter and its placement in the Bible. And if you were with us last week, last week we began looking at Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we noted that chapters 12 through 14 were really written by Paul to combat the problems that existed in the church of Corinth that related to the spiritual gifts and their usage, their function in the church. And we saw that chapter 12 tells us what the gifts are and what their purpose is in the body of Christ. And primarily if the gifts are given for the profit of all, it's to build up the uh, the body of Christ and build up those who are in the church. Chapter 14 tells us about the order and the function of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the setting of the church gathering. And I mentioned this last week that it would make so much sense, I think in our normal you know, reading of this, for Paul to tell us in chapter 12 what the gifts are and what their purpose is, and then go right into chapter 14 and talking about you know, their function. I mean, that would make the most sense to us. That's what we would expect Paul to do, but that is not what he does. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as was the Holy Spirit was guiding Paul in writing the book of 1 Corinthians, he instead pauses to talk to us about what matters most in regards to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that is love. The Bible commentator N.T. Wright said this about these chapters. He he described these chapters as a slow-moving symphony that starts in chapter 12 and it comes to its close in chapter 14. But in chapter 13, we have what what we, we might call the bridge to the song there in the middle that sort of hits this crescendo and it's the it's it does so because it's the part of the song that you remember. And it's meant to be that way because this is what matters most. The focus of chapter 13 is love. Paul established in chapter 12 that the purpose of the gifts was for the profit of all. It was for the building up of the body of Christ. We talked about that Paul, you know, would say desire the best gift. And we noted that the best gift is the gift that, that is the, the one that is, you know, for that moment or that need that fits the need that is in the room or in the setting or in that situation. So therefore, the heart of love is going to be essential in functioning within the gifts properly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And think think about it in this way, that the greatest, most essential gift that God gave his church, the gift that, that really contains the most divine power, is his gift of love working through 
the body of Christ. His love was placed in us when we're saved. Paul tells us in Romans chapter five, verse five, it'll be on the screen. He says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in your life and with the Holy Spirit comes the love of God. The love of God has been poured into you, you might say, so that it can be poured out of you. And his His love working in us and displayed one to another really is the greatest testimony we have to a lost world. That's what Jesus said in John 13, verse 35. He says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. It will be by your love for one another. That's going to be the thing Jesus said that the world, you know, looks at and kind of scratches their head and says, you know, those people are different from the rest of us. And when we walk in love for with one another, another, we're really walking in obedience to the Lord, which again is what Jesus said when he said a a new commandment, John 13, 34, I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. You also love one another. So love really is the key. It's the sign that we're saved, the Holy Spirit being in our hearts. It's the sign that we are a disciple of Jesus. It's the very thing he said that would mark us. And it's the sign, really, that we're walking in obedience in our walk with the Lord. Now, tonight, as we break down this chapter, this is going to be our outline. We're going to see and talk about, first of all, love's distinction in verses 1 through 3. And then we'll look at love's description in verses 4 through 12. And then we'll finish up with love's durability in verse 13. Let's look at love's distinction. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And although I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Pause there and give me your attention. Paul begins with this statement, although I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, I don't think this is a reference to what he was talking about in chapter 12 and what he'll talk about later in chapter 14 of the gift of tongues. I think this is just a simple way that Paul is saying, it's a reference here, it's another way of of saying speaking with eloquence. Paul is saying, although I speak with the tongue of men and angels, although I could be a really, really eloquent speaker, or we might say a gifted communicator, but Paul says that a person can be a gifted communicator who wows people, but in the eyes of heaven, and this is really the context, in the eyes of heaven, he's like a sounding gong. How many of you used to watch the gong show? You know, <laughs> that's what it like is that in, in, in the eyes of heaven. It's like the gong show. It's like just bong, you know, it's just this great big crash of a cymbal. Cymbal solos are not cool, all right? <laughs> Have you ever been to a concert where they did a cymbal solo? You haven't because it's not cool. They do guitar solos, even drum solos, but they don't do cymbal solos because that crashing sound is just annoying all by itself. And, and that's what he says. That's what it's like. It's loud and obnoxious. 
And what's interesting is that oftentimes, when you see somebody that's maybe a really gifted communicator, but love isn't there, eventually that comes out. Eventually, even here, heaven sees it right away. They see the heart. They know what's going on. You know, they're in heaven. The Lord sees that. But, but here, oftentimes, we miss that. We're wowed by the gift of that particular individual. But eventually, that comes out. Oftentimes, we've seen this in recent years where pastors who have been known as great Bible teachers, great communicators, who have literally been fired from their churches, and some have even been disqualified from ministry because because they were, became known as bullies. They weren't treating the people around them with love and, and, and with a, in a manner that represents Christ. And so Paul says, look, it doesn't matter how gifted you are, how well you speak, without love, it's just noise. And then he says in verse two, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And again, the idea here is this, is you can have great gifts and great faith, but it doesn't matter without love. I'm nothing in the eyes of heaven. I heard it said that a man with faith can move great mountains, but he will set them down in the path of somebody else or right on somebody else if he doesn't have love. A person without love, he's going to faith to move mountains, but he's going to crush people with it. You know, and that's kind of the, the idea. Now, people might applaud you for your great faith. They might be like, wow, that guy, that gal, she's amazing. But what matters is the applause of heaven. We're to do all things for God's glory. That's the focal point. In verse three, he says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And, and what Paul's really getting at here, what he's really wanting us to see is that motives are at the heart of all of this. You see, some people make huge sacrifices, they give a lot, they sacrifice a lot, they're very helpful to others, but the problem is the motive is self-recognition. The motive is to be seen by others. The motive is, is the praise uh, of others. It's, it's for others to look at and go, wow, that guy is so giving. And Paul says, if, hey, if that's, the re- if that's the motive, there's no reward. There's no reward in heaven for that. It amounts to nothing. It's worth nothing that, and, and it's interesting, I think it's also worth noting here, that the, the word that Paul uses here for love is the word agape. And it's a love that, that simply means, it speaks of God's love, it's a love that gives simply for the sake of giving, never expecting anything in return. That's agape love. It's unconditional. It gives without expecting anything in return. Agape is active, not passive. It's an active love. It's an action type of love. The, the focus is not on what love is, but what on love what love does and what love doesn't do. And that's what we're going to see that Paul breaks down for us here in this passage. But remember what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. He said, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's agape. 
It's a love that doesn't just say, man, love you, man, but it's a love that loves in truth. It's a, it's a love that, that loves in action. That's what Jesus did. That's the ultimate. You know, it wasn't just that God was like, hey, I love you guys so much down there. Sorry you're going to hell, but I love, you know, I love you guys. No, he, he did something, right? He sent his son. He says, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to fix your problem. I'm going to make a way for you to be rescued. I'm going to make a way for you to have hope that, that hell isn't going to be your final destiny. I'm going to send my son to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. That's agape. That's what agape love does. So love's distinction is that all the gifts and talents in the world are nothing in heaven's eyes without love. Now we come to see love's description, and we're going to note this in two ways. We'll see love's features in verses 4 through 6, and then we'll see love's fortitude in verses 7 through 12. Let's look at love's features, what love does and doesn't do. He says, love, in verse 4, suffers long and is kind. That word suffers long means that it's patient under provocation, The literal meaning of the word long-suffering is long-tempered. So the idea is not easily angered. You know, the characteristics of love reveals the truth that love doesn't retaliate. It's Jesus on the cross when he has all power to call down fire from heaven upon those who have put him on the cross, and he doesn't do that. He's long-suffering. Because of his mission. Now, in the context of the body of Christ, it's long-suffering is when we are giving people room to grow. We're giving people, you know, as we talk about the idea of this, remember, the context of this is in the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, we're, we want to be in a place, in a setting where we're giving people room to grow. My, my friend, um, Rob Verdine, who pastors Calvary Chapel in um, Corvallis, Oregon, great church. And when he started that church, he started that church with two things that were, you know, on his heart that were going to be the hallmark of that church. And it was the Sunday morning service and the Saturday night prayer meeting. And for the longest time, that was all they had at that church, a Sunday morning service and a Saturday night prayer meeting. That was the focal point. That was the the engine. And in that Saturday night prayer meeting, he really wanted it to be a setting where the gifts of the Holy Spirit could operate. And he really wanted the church to to grow in that and 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 they really wanted them to be able to function in that. And so that was a that was a big focus. Um, and he taught on that and he instructed that. But here's the thing. If you've ever been in a setting where you're kind of waiting on the Lord and, and giving opportunity for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, to operate, it seems like that those are oftentimes, um, the settings where, for lack of a better way to say this, people get kooky. Okay. People just kind of sometimes, you know, can get kind of weird. And sometimes you have people that, you know, have good intentions, but, but they do the wrong thing. And you have other people that have bad intentions that want to kind of hijack the meeting. And he was having a meeting 
early on in their gathering where they're waiting upon the Lord and there was a young guy in the group and he was very, very sincere. Um, he just, you know, wasn't real learned and, and in the middle of this evening, they're kind of waiting on the Lord and this, this young man starts off by seeing, you know, I'm getting a vision and I see a, I see a, a crown and I see a king and, and, and I, this king's a great king. And, he's, and everybody's like, you know, wow, this is awesome. And he goes, he's the Burger King. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> and he was totally serious. Now, if that was me, I'm just going to be perfectly honest. The meeting would have just ended right there. You know, it just would have been like, spirits quenched, we're done, let's go home. You know, that, that would be me. That's not my friend Rob, though. And he was much more long-suffering and much more patient and much more just a sense to say, okay, you know, I'm going to find a way to redeem what was just said and point everybody back to the Lord. And he did that, and they continued on, and they continued to grow as a church in that way so that if you um, were to go, for instance, to their week-long prayer of, of uh, prayer and fasting like we do here. They do one as well. They've been doing a lot longer than ours, and, and um, they've been doing it for 27 years now. Every single year they do, and, and it's amazing. I mean, the prophecies, the word of knowledge. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible week, and I'm really praying that we would grow, continue to grow in that way in our week of prayer and fasting as well. But Anyway, it's, it's that thing of being long-suffering, that sense of just, you know, okay, I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna let people grow, we're gonna let you know, people fail, we're gonna let people make mistakes. We're all growing in this together. The next thing he says, though, is love suffers long and is kind. And the idea here is that while it's suffering, it doesn't become cynical or bitter. It remains kind, the idea is, you know, as I'm suffering long, as I'm being patient here, I'm not going to let you know how patient I'm being. You know how many people do that? You know, like they're being patient with you, but they really let you know that they're being patient with you because they're really not being that patient with you, you know, but because they let you, that's the idea. It's like, I'm, I'm going to be kind. You know, I'm just, you know, I, I might be feeling frustrated, but I'm not going to show that. I'm not going to say that. This word kind refers to active goodness that goes forth in, on the behalf of others. Active goodness. I love that description. So he tells us, first off, this is what love does. It suffers long and is kind. And then he's going to tell us eight things that love doesn't do. He says, first of all, number one, love does not envy. True love is not jealous over the abilities or possessions or giftings of others. True love is not jealous over the opportunities of others. That would really fit into this context of, you know, the gifts flowing in the body of Christ is sometimes, you know, people get jealous. Oh man, the Lord's using that person in that way and not me. How come? And, you know, the Paul's saying, no, true love doesn't do that. True love, it doesn't become jealous. It's not envious that of how God is maybe using someone else. Instead, it appreciates the gift that is being used. 
It appreciates the fact that that's awesome that God used, you know, that guy or that gal in that way, you know, tonight. It's awesome that, you know, that person was used to encourage the body in that type of way. And it doesn't have that mentality of like, how come they get to do that? And I don't get to do, you know, that type of thing. That so often falls into the, you know, the body of Christ. True love, it doesn't do that. Number two, love does not parade itself. Literally, this means it does not make a parade. It doesn't, it doesn't brag. And again, the context is here, here is that it's not seeking to draw attention to itself or to what it is doing. You know, any person that always seeks, seems like they have to be the center of attention um, is really not walking in love. Persons that, people that, that feel like they always have to be the center of attention in the body of Christ can literally quench the Holy Spirit. The third thing it's, he says here is that it's not puffed up. Literally, the idea here, we use this phrase, it doesn't have a big head. You know, you ever see that? That guy's got a fat head. And, and you don't mean that his head's giant, but you mean like that he's just full of himself is the, you know, kind of the idea. And to be proud is to be overly self-confident or insubordinate to God or to others. And the scriptures in both the New Testament and the Old Testament really condemn pride as a source of so much destruction and pain in the world today. But when one who cares about other people, he's not going to find, he, he's not concerned about, you know, being the center of attention or, or being, you know, he's not so full of self-importance because he realizes, hey, we're, we're all the body. We talked about this last week, you know, it's not the, the hand saying to the foot, I don't have need of you, you know, you're nothing, you're in that stupid shoe all day and, you know, look at me, you know, it's, that, it's not that type of mentality, He says the next thing, it does not behave rudely. And at the heart of rudeness is a disregard for the opinions and customs that others have adopted. It's the idea of I really don't value you enough to really hear you. I don't value you enough to really care about what you're going to say or, you know, what, how God wants to move and work in, in, in your life. It's a disregard for another person's value in the body of Christ. But a proper regard and value, on the other hand, indicates a great love for people. Love is never rude, but always treats others with a compassion, a consideration, and a respect. You could put it this way, love listens. It listens. It listens to, you know, what's going on in, in somebody else's life. It's, it's interested in the heart of, of what somebody else is doing and sharing. The next thing he mentions is it does not seek its own. That true love is never selfish or self-centered, but it is actively interested in what will profit others. It never looks at itself first, in other words, but it always considers another ahead of itself. It's the very thing that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 12 verse 10 when he said in honor giving preference to one another. It's the idea of deferring and it's why because I honor you. I honor you as my brother and sister in the Lord that I see your value that I see your place in the body that I want to see you growing and and all of us you know growing and so 
It's, it's seeking to per, defer and give preference. Paul said the same thing in Philippians chapter 2 when he said, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. And this is really the most basic way that we're like Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Philippians chapter 2 is all about. It's Paul's example of what Jesus did. He gives this great explanation about how we're to, you know, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but the interest of others, that you're to prefer others above yourself. And then he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who left heaven and came to this earth. That Jesus leaves his place of comfort, leaves his place there on the throne. Why? Because he saw your need and my need as greater than his own comfort. And that's the picture. And so when, when Paul says, when we're you know, not seeking our own, but we're being others-focused, we're really following that model of Christ, who on the night that he was gonna go to the cross, Jesus gives the most incredible display of love in John chapter 13, when he takes the form of, of the lowest servant in the house, and one by one goes along and and washes all the disciples' feet, showing him the love. And then he says, you know, as I have done to you, you do to one another. He was giving them that example. The next thing he says, number six, is that love is not provoked. The idea is it's not easily angered. It's not a hothead. But true love only responds in anger to the things that anger God. There is a, such a thing as, you know, righteous indignation. But, you know, somebody that's flowing in love, they're not going to be a hothead. They're not going to be somebody that's always just getting irritated with others. Number seven, it thinks no evil. And literally, if you want to write this, a better translation of this verse would be, it keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no record of wrongs. You know, it's like the guy who went to work one day and he was just thrashed. He just looked like, you know, he'd gone 12 rounds with Mike Tyson. And his buddy that he was working with goes, you look, you look like a mess. Did you have a rough night last night? He goes, yeah, I got in a big fight with my wife. And man, every time we get in a fight like this, she gets historical. And, and, and his friend says, historical? Don't you mean hysterical? And he goes, yeah, she gets that too, but she gets historical. She brings up every rotten thing I've ever done, you know? Well, that's, that's what Paul is not talking about here. No, it keeps no record of wrong. You know, it's interesting when we were doing our marriage retreat, my wife shared this story. And just so you know, your pastor and his wife, we fight sometimes. Okay, I know that shocks you, but we do. And this was actually years ago. This was, a, I guess, a pretty big one. And uh, my wife got so mad that she grabbed her car keys and stormed out the door and got in her car and she drove off. And as she drove off, she thought to herself, what am I doing, you know? It was the early part of the evening. It wasn't quite, quite dark yet, but she's like, going, where, where am I going to go? You know, where, where, where am I going to go right now? You know, I can't go to my in-laws and complain to them about their son. And some of you are thinking, why not? Um, <laughs> but uh, that's what she was thinking. I can't do that. She's like, I can't go to Don and Eddie's house. I mean, they live, you know, by us. And so my wife literally drove around the block. And every time she drove around the block, she 
was hoping to see me like out in the driveway looking for her. But I wasn't. Because <laughs> I was a jerk. <laughs> and, uh, and so she drove around, drove around, and, and just, you know, drove around for a while. And finally she, you know, came home and she comes in the house. And she's, you know, hoping that I'm going to be like waiting there and just all apologetic. But I wasn't. I actually went to bed. <laughs> and, uh, so she comes up and, and you know, she gets in bed and, and you know, I'm just, I'm sleeping. And, um, and so what was interesting, though, about this story, so this happened probably, oh, 25 years ago or 23 years ago, something like that. And um, I completely forgot about this. What a jerk I was being, you know, I completely forgot about it. And she never, ever brought it up until we were teaching at a marriage conference and we, were, and we do this thing where we teach together. It's kind of like a tag team type of thing. And we were going to be talking about forgiveness and we were kind of looking, you know, making a point. She goes, do you remember that fight we had? And she starts telling me just what I just told you. And I was like, I don't remember that at all. And I didn't. But here's what's cool. 23 years went by and she never, ever brought it up. Never brought it up. She kept no record of wrong. Now, I will say there have been other things that she has brought up, but uh, she's not perfect, but, but uh, she didn't there. You know, it's, it's, it's like Peter. You know, Peter comes to Jesus and says, you know, Lord, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Remember what Jesus said? No, how about 70 times seven? Now, was Jesus saying 490 is the, that's the place where you cut them off, you know? Was that the point? Like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, 489, one more. No, Jesus was saying, you don't even count. Don't even count. That's the idea. You, you, you forgive. And this is what he's saying. It keeps no record of wrong. And again, the, the context, and I keep wanting to bring it back to this, the context in this is the body of Christ. And here's what I see happens a lot of times in a church. And this is where we need to not do this. Is somebody will do something that is out of line. Or somebody will, you know, maybe go off the deep end for a little bit. And, and, and we can have this tendency in the body of Christ to suddenly label that person, you know. We label them as, well, that guy's, you know, he's kind of a loser. Or, you know, that, you can't trust that person. Or, you know, we do that type of thing. And we, we basically do what Jesus is saying not to do. Or we keep a record of wrong toward people in the body of Christ. That's why, you know, it, it said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded, you know. And sometimes we can do that. Somebody, you know, they, they fall away, they, they backslide, you know, they come back and they're all wounded. What do they do? And we, like, take out our bows and arrows and, like, shoot them more. Like, you idiot, what were you thinking? You know, that type of thing. And um, that happens, unfortunately. So the idea here is, no, love keeps no record of wrong. I mean, think about this. All of us here in the room. What if Jesus did that to you? What if he kept a record of all of your wrongs, even since you've been a Christian? I'll tell you what, my list is really, really long. My list is really, really big. My flesh can get the best of me 
just like anybody else. And I'm so glad that the Bible says that Jesus not only forgives our sins, but he also forgets our sins. Now, I will say this. I'm not saying that, you know, we we just approach somebody like, hey, you know, you've been doing drugs the last four months and, and you just came back today, you want to preach? You know, no, we're, we're not, I'm not saying that. But, but I am saying there's a sense of, of you know, okay, brother, you, fall, you fell, okay, we're here to help you back up and we want to see you grow and you've repented and let's move forward. Let's move forward with that individual. So love keeps no record of wrong. Next thing he says, but it rejoices in the truth. Some translations render the word truth as good. In other words, love says to another, you're lifted up, you're being honored. Wow, look how God's using you. That's awesome. I'm delighted for you. Love rejoices when the other guy does well, when somebody else gets blessed is the idea. So that's love's description. Those are the features of love. And then we'll we'll see in verses 7 through 12, love's fortitude. He says here in verse 7 that love bears all things. The idea there is that love always protects. It endures. Or a better way of putting this is it covers. You know, in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, we're told that love covers a multitude of sins. We have a great example of this in the story of Noah. After the flood, when Noah and his family are, you know, kind of getting reestablished on the earth, we read there in the book of Genesis where Noah gets drunk one day. And he just gets, you know, totally smashed, and he's in his tent, he's passed out, and he's naked. Well, his son Ham comes in and sees his dad like that. And you know what he does? He exposes Noah's sin. He runs to his brothers and he's like, man, you should see dad. He's like totally passed out drunk and he's naked. I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, that's kind of the idea. But his two brothers, Ham exposes Noah's sin, his two brothers seek to cover it. And this is what they do. They literally grab a blanket and they walk into the tent backwards. It's like they don't even want to see Noah's sin. It's a great picture of love. And they walk in backwards and throw the blanket on their dad so that they don't have to see him in his sin because they were functioning in love. And this is what Paul's saying. This is what love does is it, it bears all things. It, it covers. And he says, number two, love believes all things. Another way to put this is love gives others the benefit of the doubt. It lo- gives people the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't question their motives. But it's just, hey, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. It's my brother and sister in the Lord. And he says, and love hopes all things. This is love's fortitude. Loving someone requires maintaining a measure of optimism on that person's behalf. That hope is an attitude that good will eventually come to those who maybe have been failing. That there's a sense of like we're, we're their cheerleader. We're hoping like, all right, man, I'm hoping that it's going to go well for you. Because if we're honest, failure invades every Christian's life. 
and it often causes others to give up on those who fail, like I was just talking about. Yet Christians who continue in love really hope for the best. It's that sense of seeking to be an encourager, to help others keep moving forward in their walk with the Lord. But here's the thing, and this is what's so key. The hope is not based on the Christian. It's not based on, man, I'm, hope, you know, I'm hoping you're finally, you know, Mike, I'm hoping you're finally going to get it together to, you know, this time. No, the hope is based on Jesus, who said that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The hope is that, that this time, maybe this is going to be the time where it finally catches and Jesus is able to have his full way in that person's heart. So love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Number four, endures all things. It perseveres, even in the tough seasons. You know, when someone is compliant, it's easy to love them, isn't it? How many of you here have teenagers? Okay. (laughs) When your teenagers are compliant, it's easy to love them, right? But when they start throwing that attitude, you know, when they start kind of exercising that just kind of teenage thing that happens sometimes, then it gets harder. That's when love really, really shows itself. Love shines the most in tough circumstances and with tough people. It's easy to to love people who are easy to love. But when love really, really shows itself is when you're loving someone who isn't easy to love. Now here's what's interesting about this. If you are one who bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things, people will accuse you of being blind to certain situations. They'll say, man, you're blind. Don't you see what's happening? But in actuality, they're they're, they're wrong in that. Because agape love is not blind. Listen. It's the only thing you hear tonight. This is probably the biggest thing I want you to hear. Because love sees more, this is agape, because love sees more, it's willing to see less. And what do I mean by it sees more? What does love see? This is what love sees. Love sees the price that Jesus paid on the cross at Calvary for that sin, for that wrong that was done. That's what love does. Love sees more. Love sees what Jesus did to pay the price for that wrong that was committed to you. We have a beautiful picture of this in Exodus chapter 15. When the children of Israel are going through the wilderness and they, they, they're super thirsty and they see up ahead a pool of water. And they rush to this pool of water and they throw their faces in it to get a drink. But the Bible says that the water was bitter in their mouth. They spit it out. It was like it was disgusting. And so they're like, oh, what are we going to do? What we thought was going to be refreshing to us is, is now bitter taste in our mouth. And it says the Lord showed Moses a tree that was sitting there, that was planted by the river, by the, by the waters there. And he says, cut down that tree, throw it into the water, and it'll make the bitter water sweet. And that's what he did. 
He cut down the tree, he threw it into the water, and he made the, that made the bitter water sweet, and they were able to drink freely. Now, why do you think God put that there in the Bible, in that story? I think he put that there because it's meant to be a picture for us. You see, in every single bitter situation that we find ourselves in, there's already a tree by by the bitter waters. There's already a tree that is by that bitter situation, that wrong that was done, that hurt that was done to us. There's already a tree, and the tree is the cross. And if we would simply just throw the tree into that bitter situation, it can make the water sweet when we realize and understand that the wrong that was done to me Jesus paid the price for that. He paid the price for that wrong. He died on the cross. We, we sit there and say, I want justice to be served. And he says, it already was. I paid the price for that. And what is so important for us to see in this church is the writer of Hebrews warns us about giving into what he calls our roots of bitterness. It's where we allow bitterness to just take root, unforgiveness to take root in our hearts. And he says, beware of roots of bitterness whereby many become defiled. And I have literally seen whole families become defiled by someone's bitterness. Bitterness is contagious. It's, it's a better word, it's infectious. It's like a disease. And it affects not just your heart, but those who are around you. You know, the reason why Jesus says that we need to forgive, you know what that really is for? It's for you. Because he doesn't want your heart to get, you know, infected with bitterness. So he says, hey, I want you to just forgive because I've forgiven you. Now, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean, though, that you're reconciled with them because reconciliation is predicated upon repentance. There has to be a repentance in order for there to be reconciliation. And trust only comes when there's, or that restoration only comes when there's trust. And trust is only born over time. But the first step is you in your heart just saying, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to throw in the tree because I don't want this to affect me. You know, every single time one of us gets hurt, and we all get hurt. In fact, let me ask you this question. How many of you have been hurt physically, or maybe it wasn't a, an injury, it was maybe a surgery, but, but somewhere on your, your body, you, you have a physical scar, okay? Let's all stand up and show them right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have some scars as well. But you know what? Every single time we get hurt emotionally, it also leaves a scar. And you know what's interesting about physical scars is, you know, when, when you first get wounded, you're bleeding. And it hurts. But over some time, it starts to heal. And that healing, part of that healing process is it usually scabs. But scabs are still tender, right? Right? You can have a scab, let's say you have a big scrape on your arm and somebody comes up and goes, hey, and you're like, oh, it's still, it's still tender. But eventually, it finally heals and it leaves, it's going to leave a scar. And usually the scar is a story. Like, dude, what happened to you there? You know, and there's a story behind that, that scar. Well, the same thing is true when we get hurt emotionally, even spiritually. It leaves a wound 
that eventually is going to heal. But in the healing process, it can still be tender. It's like a scab. So something gets said or something is done or somebody raises their voice and it's a reminder of what happened before. And it, and it can almost be like that wound gets opened up again. But eventually that wound is going to heal and it leaves an emotional scar. And that scar, though, will become a symbol in your life of one of two things. For people who give in to bitterness and unforgiveness, it literally becomes the symbol of the thing that defines them. It's the thing that, that basically they say, you know, this, you know, somebody says, well, what happened there? Oh, that's the thing that ruined my life. And it defines them. Because they've given in to that bitterness and that unforgiveness. But that scar, that emotional scar, can also become a symbol of God's grace. That it can be that thing where you say, somebody goes, now what happened there? And you're like, you know what? That could have been the thing that ruined my life, but God. This is what God did. This is how God intervened. This is how, how God allowed me as I just threw in the tree, as I applied the cross, as I allowed you know, Jesus to take that, that it became the very thing in my life that is now a part of my testimony of how Jesus saw me through the most difficult time in my life. So love. When we're loving Love sees more, and because it sees more, it's willing to see less. Because it realizes, you know what? That person hurt me. I've hurt others. Jesus paid the price for my sins. He paid the price for that sin. You know what? I'm not going to just dwell on this anymore. I'm going to throw in the tree. And then the next thing he says there in verse 8, number 5, is that love never fails. Now, here's what's interesting about this list. And I'm sure that in, in, you, know, you have heard someone teach her on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and you probably heard the teacher say, now, try to put your name in this list of Paul describes here of love. How many of you have heard that? Some of you say that before. Try to put your name in there. And you try to put your name in there. You know, love is, Rob is patient and kind and Rob never fails. And it's laughable, right? When we try to put our name in that list because we don't measure up. And then the teacher will say, okay, take out your name and put in the name of Jesus. And we find that his name fits perfectly. And we sit there and say, and it is a wonderful truth. That is so awesome that Jesus loves each one of us in that way. It is so wonderful. It's such an awesome truth to know that Jesus loves me this much, that his love is perfect in every way. But I think that some believers take this one step too far by coming to this conclusion. And this is the conclusion some believers come to when they use that analogy, is they'll sit there and they'll say, okay, I don't need to worry about this anymore. Because I, I, obviously I can't, I can't do this. Only Jesus can. Yay, Jesus, why do I need to try? So what is this? This doesn't even apply to me. Why do I even need to know this? I mean, some people go that far. That's the wrong application. You see, this love may not be attainable in our humanity, but it's still supposed to be pursued 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Paul says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Here's the thing. We may never fully attain to this love in our humanity, but listen, church, it still is the target. It's still what we are to be aiming at. It's what we are seeking to grow into. It is the measuring stick of our growth in the Lord. It's the byproduct, really, of walking in the Spirit. It's what the Lord is seeking to do. In Romans chapter 8, 29, we're told this is God's end game, is he wants to make us, conform us into the, in, the image of Jesus. And this is a beautiful description of Jesus. So this can kind of be the measuring stick that we can look in our lives and go, how, how am I growing? Am I becoming more long-suffering? Or am I still just, you know, short-tempered and agitated all the time? Lord, help me. And when this is the key. The key in this, please hear me, is not for you to get discouraged when you look at this list and go, oh, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. It's literally just God's way of showing you this is where you still need to grow. This is what you need to be praying about. This is what you need to be bringing to me and asking me to help you in this way. This is what walking in the Spirit looks like. You know, Paul in Galatians 5 said this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I love what one you know, commentator said about this, and, and I, I kind of agree with this description. He said that the fruit of the Spirit is love, period. And all the rest of these are merely the byproduct of love. And he described it like this. Joy is love's rejoicing. Peace is love's resting. Patience is love waiting and enduring. Kindness is love's caring. Goodness is love motivating. Faithfulness is love keeping its word. Gentleness is love's esteeming others. And self-control is love's restraint. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And this is what Jesus is wanting to do in our lives. And the only way that we can exhibit this type of love is to let Christ live through us, for he is the embodiment of these characteristics. We can't psych ourselves up and go, okay, today I'm going to do this. No, this kind of love is nothing less than the fruit of the Holy Spirit being produced in us as we seek to grow in the Lord, as we seek to abide. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse five? I'm the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. What's the fruit he's talking about? Is he talking about that apples are gonna be growing out of your ears? No, he's talking about the fruit of love. And then he says this, for without me, you can do nothing. And listen to me, church. As it relates to this, the key is not trying harder. You see, that's where a lot of us get messed up. Is you think, I just need to try harder. How many of you have done that before? I just need to try harder. Boy, I've done that before. In fact, there was a time, many, many years ago, when I was in college, up at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, I was teaching on a Sunday night Bible study there, team teaching with a friend of mine. And there was a guy in the church, it was actually my friend's brother, and Basically, I was dating this girl, and he and this girl that I was dating were like best friends. And it bugged the heck out of me, okay? <laughs> and I just, every time I was around him and around them, I just would get super jealous and agitated, and, and I knew it was wrong. 
And so every time I knew I was going to see him, I, I would be like, I'm going to love him today, you know. I'm going to just try harder. And every, I mean, it's like every time I get around, I just like wanted to punch him, you know. I just, it, it, the, the harder I tried, the more I failed. And it literally got to the point where I, I started like, am I even saved? I was questioning my salvation. And I was doing this Bible study with, we are preparing for this Bible study with his brother. And he said to me, my friend said to me, you know, what's wrong with you? You don't, you seem out of sorts. And I'm like, oh, nothing. He goes, no. He goes, we're not going any further until you tell me what's wrong. I literally told him, I literally said this. I said, you want to know what's wrong? I hate your brother's guts. (laughs) And I literally, at the point of just being so frustrated, one night after we taught that Bible study, I went to this park and I was just crying out to the Lord in the darkness. And I just was saying, God, I can't do this. And he said, you're right, you can't, but I can. And that was the breakthrough. It was coming to that place. Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Realizing your utter need upon the Lord for everything. And coming to that place where it was just like, Lord, I need you. It's not in trying harder, it's in surrender. It's believing, for without you, I can do nothing. This love Jesus does want to produce in us. Well, let's wrap this up. Look at verse eight. He says, but whether there are prophecies, they fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So prophecy, tongues, words of knowledge, they're they're all gonna vanish away. Why? Because in heaven, there's not gonna be need for prophecy and edification and exhortation or comfort because everyone will be perfectly comforted and perfectly edified in heaven. There's no longer gonna be a need in heaven for exhortation. Unknown tongues will vanish because everything will be known in heaven. Words of knowledge won't be needed because we'll know all things. In fact, Paul continues in verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then, then that which is in part will be done away. Now, there's some debate over this verse over the meaning of that which is perfect. You see, some think that that which is perfect refers to the Bible. And so they refer to, they say that the canonization of the New Testament, when the the New Testament was fully given, in other words, that negated the need for prophecy and words of knowledge and words of wisdom, since everything man needs could be found in the Bible. So that's where they say that these manifestations of the Holy Spirit are no longer for today. But what's interesting is that interpretation that is so common in our day and age was not suggested by a single commentator until shortly after 1906. And that was the year that the Azusa Street Revival broke out where the Holy Spirit fell and it spread across the country and ultimately into the various parts of the world. And here's what happens oftentimes in the body of Christ when God is moving and working that those who don't understand what he's doing can tend to react in the extreme. And that's what happened. And the extreme was to, especially when sometimes you know, people can go a little bit too far. And they begin to take things out, you know, out of context. And people, re, you know, they, they react in the extreme and go, that, that's, that's not for today. Well, 
I don't think this is at all referring to the Bible being that which is perfect. I think that that which is perfect that it's talking about is Jesus. It's talking about, Paul's talking about when we see Jesus face to face, that's when there's not going to be a need for anything else because we're going to be complete. It's what John basically said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Isn't that awesome? We're going to see him, and we're going to be like him. And suddenly everything's going to be clear. It's basically what Paul says next. It correlates with what John said there in verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we seem in a mirror dimly. And they use these brass mirrors in those days. And so if you ever tried to look at yourself in brass, it's not the best reflection. That's what he's talking about. You know, we don't, we don't see things clearly right now, but then we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Right now, there's a lot of things that are still confusing to us. But there's a day coming when we're going to stand before Jesus and suddenly everything is going to make sense. The last thing we see here in verse 13 is love's durability. He says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I love this because faith looks back. Faith tells me that why Jesus came, that he came and died on the cross. Faith allows me to embrace what Jesus did for me on the cross. Faith reminds me that my sins are forgiven. Therefore, I don't have to worry about my past and be haunted by my past. Hope, on the other hand, looks ahead. Hope tells me that Jesus is coming. Hope tells me that I don't have to be upset or uptight about the future in this crazy world that we're living in right now. Hope is that absolute expectation of coming good. Hope is the reality that we know that Jesus wins. So faith looks back, hope looks ahead, but love looks around. Love tells me that Jesus is here. Love frees us in the present. Love says, I want to see Jesus in my brothers and sisters. I want to look for Jesus in them. How do they remind me of Jesus? Love says, I want to be about what is going to be a blessing to my brothers and sisters. Love says, I want the best gift. Why? Because the best gift is the gift that, that meets the need of the moment. I want to be somebody in my circle of of the body of Christ that I'm a part of that builds up others. Love is what matters most. So we get love by getting closer to Jesus. And we know that we're growing in Jesus as individuals and as a group by the amount of love that flows from our lives. So let's do what Paul said. Let's pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. And that's where we'll pick it up next time. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for just this beautiful picture. And Lord, I pray that we would be a body of believers who are growing in love for one another, growing in our love for you, growing in our love for the lost. 
that we would understand and we would see, Lord, that, that you are desiring to do this work in us to make us more like yourself and that this would be a place that we would be a family as dysfunctional as we might be because we are sinners and we do fail and we have flaws, but that we would be a family that loves each other well. That we would be a testimony to the world around us. And we ask these things, Lord, tonight in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.